Welcome back to Good Dirt, conversations with leaders in real estate and beyond. We are your hosts, Mike Greeley and Tom Greeley of Newmark, and we're thrilled to be back with our second series of interviews with very interesting investors, developers, and all sorts of different folks involved in the commercial real estate business here. We are back. It, it dawned on us after a few of these that it takes a whole lot of work, so we appreciate your patience as we took a break here. But we're back in a big way. We're very excited with this week's interview. We have the Chief of Planning and Director of the Boston Planning and Development Agency, Arthur Jemison, who is not only a great individual, but has an incredible history here in Boston, in the city of Detroit, at HUD, down in Washington, D.C., and, and he's homegrown UMass Amherst grad. So we're, we're excited for you to hear this interview. We think you're going to really enjoy listening to Arthur's perspective as somebody in City Hall who, who sees a lot, who has a finger on the pulse of virtually everything that's going on, and we think you'll get a lot out of this conversation. Yeah, and Arthur's open-minded. I think we politely voice some of our opinions from our seat in the commercial business, and I'd say that he does seem like a person who's come into this position with an incredible background, first of all. I was fascinated to hear about how he started in the planning business, his exposure and expertise in the affordable housing arena, and really bridging together the private and public markets. Definitely. And his big theme, which you'll hear is, let's get on the same side of the table. Let's be a team and, and get things done. And, and we think that's the attitude and, and the mentality that his office needs to take. So we're again, we're excited for his leadership in the BPDA and excited for you to hear the interview. We'd also like to shout out our research guru, Connell Chamberlain, and our interns, Greg Goldenberg and Jack O'Donnell for the great research here. We think you're going to enjoy the episode, particularly Chief Jemison's interest in books and, and some of his tastes. He's got some great ideas there. Yeah. If you are active really anywhere across the commercial markets, I think especially in multifamily would be interesting. But Arthur Jemison has a great perspective on the local market, the national market. And I think that he's he's got a big job today. There are no shortage of challenges for someone in his seat. But we went into this conversation with a lot of questions, and I think we ended it being extremely encouraged. So we're rooting for him, and we hope you enjoy this interview. Please share it with your colleagues, because I think this is one that, that the market would benefit from hearing. Thank you. Enjoy, everybody. Welcome back to Good Dirt. We are thrilled to be here today with Arthur Jemison. Arthur is the Chief of Planning and Director of the Boston Planning and Development Agency. Thanks for being with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for the invitation. Well, we, along with many others in the market, have been excited to see you get to work here. And it's an interesting time in Boston, but just in the American city in general. Absolutely. So we could use your leadership and guidance as, as we navigate this market. But I think your background and your expertise, we're focused on the commercial industry, the commercial real estate business day to day. But I think your your expertise and your coverage in all your roles throughout your career, including today in Boston, spans a wide range of commercial real estate, the multifamily market, the affordable housing market. And we want to talk about all those today. So if you could take us back, Arthur, to your UMass Amherst days. We have a bunch <laughs> of UMass Amherst folks here at Newmark, so they'll be excited to hear that. But can we start there? Of course. What were you up to in college? Where, where'd you grow up? Let's go back earlier because you grew up in Amherst, I believe. I did. We'll let I you did. tell the story. Um, I mean, the nickel tour at the amusement park is, is basically, I uh, was born in Detroit to Detroiter parents, like many Detroiters originally from, from the South, uh, Alabama and Tennessee, respectively. But my father was a 
among many things, pursuing his graduate degree and working. And so we moved around a bunch. So we landed in Amherst in about 1980, and I lived there uh, with my family uh, until I went to college. And obviously, I went to college in, in Amherst as well. Amherst is a great community. I feel very proud to be a product of the high school and all the great teachers there. Went to UMass. I had big dreams of different places to go, but UMass turned out to be a really great fit for me, and I'm a huge fan of the university. I was a what we call a stepic major there. I was particularly interested in the economics side of that major, and so really enjoyed my, my years there. I was introduced to a program called Public Policy International Affairs Fellowship Program. At that time, it was called the Woodrow Wilson Fellowship, and they tried to take rising juniors uh, who were interested in planning or public policy and get them involved in looking in graduate school. They're looking for underrepresented students in those fields. And so early on, I spent a summer in, in Berkeley, California at the Graduate School of Public Policy there learning about policy, and I really wanted to get involved in development. So basically, since then, it's been nonstop planning and development. So as a result of that program, if you perform well, you have a chance to earn some money to support your graduate education, and uh, and I was able to pursue it at MIT in the planning program there. And so right after that, those two years in the housing community development section, I left there and took my first job, which was at Arthur Anderson in Miami, Florida. Not sure for those who know, the big six at that time had all tried to have, you know, they were in the acquisition mode at that time, buying sort of smaller local shops that were interested in, that, that did real estate work. So it was 1994, and I was working in uh, in Miami during one of the many condo booms down there. And it was a fascinating introduction to the industry. And I mean, I was down there a few years ago, uh, catching up with old friends and family down there. And it was it was great. Uh, the place has, has grown so much. And I could go on for a long time about the rest of the story, but maybe to <laughs> I take bet a it was an interesting time, though, to be involved in that market in Miami during a oh, condo yeah. boom, I mean, which, was, which was like something the U.S. had almost never seen. Probably before. like it is today. It oh, was fascinating. I mean, at that time, uh, what was going on in the market was there were Miami was sort of being rediscovered again. Uh, it gets rediscovered every once in a while. But uh, this was at a time, this has got to be, again, 94. It was being sort of rediscovered, particularly the beach. Miami Beach was really transitioning from being, you know, the beach that you might have known in the 70s or 80s into a place where condominium development was welcome and sort of people rediscovering the natural resource that's there. In the beach, all the fashion trades and all the others were sort of dis- rediscovering the place. So there was a boom in and condominium development on the beach where in our firm, Arthur Anderson, they had bought a local organization called Goodkin Research, which is where the person who uh, I worked with was from. And Goodkin was like your old school kind of feasibility mm-hmm. and uh, market research shop. And they sort of became part of this big six organization that was not always an easy but again, great people. Most of them still working in real estate down there. I've had a lot of fond memories of um trying to get, you know. Uh, understanding what the uh, premium would be for selling a condo that would allow pets versus not. (laughs) Just like every kind of, you know, having to go into condominium buildings and uh, trying to get market information. It was was a fascinating time. Again, this is all pre- 
phones and apartments.com right. and yeah. you know the resources we have today it's it's, it's a lot easier to do that than it was then so anyway but it was a great introduction to the business and but i wanted to come back to massachusetts and i found an opportunity to do something very different at the boston housing authority again i could keep going like this but yeah, i don't no, want to like waste your that's that's great and we want to hear about all of it i'm interested in that transition at, at umass mm-hmm. you were studying economics you, you maybe had some real estate interests but you did this international affairs you're on the policy side maybe thinking more about government but your first job was on the private side was in accounting and feasibility then you made the the pivot to Public the, sector, the Boston yeah. Housing Authority. How did you make that decision, and, and what, what went into that? Well, at that time, I was like, I was in my mid twenties. I really wanted to. I mean, I had a, the chance to work with a guy, well known here in Boston. Oh, he passed in in two thousand eleven. Vince Drozer. Uh, he was then the chief operating officer at the Housing Authority, and the issue in public housing for some time continues today, although. Boston has been very successful and a leader in this area was really public housing lacks the federal investment that it needs. I mean, the way you would think about preserving an asset in the private sector is just not part of the way that public housing has historically been maintained. And so, and as you know, this is an area of of very long-term interest of mine. At any rate, Vince had a vision of thinking about the assets differently, which was very coincident with the policy thinking of the time. At that time, there was this new program called Hope Six, which uh, had posited the idea of of redeveloping distressed public housing with a very big capital allocation and then rethinking various parts of the operating model. And so it was a time when that was just starting. I got a chance to meet a lot of the local affordable housing lights here through working a little bit on uh, Mission, Maine, and a lot more on Orchard Park, and then on a project in South Boston called West Broadway. Now, what was interesting about West Broadway was our state, unlike other states, uh, has not only our housing authorities, most of them not only have federal property, but they also have state property. So the state, the idea was, are there ways to take the mixed finance and mixed income model model that's working with Hope 6 and to turn it into something that we're doing in the state system. Because the state, all the, the changes and issues that are true about public housing in the country are also true in a state-owned asset. So bringing some of those approaches. And so now if you go down West Broadway, there's one section that's different than the others. And that was the result of work that Kate Bennett did and others did, but you know that I got a chance to start there. And, and to your question, it's very much that's what got brought me back was sort of bringing some of the ways you think about private assets into the public conversation. And and now, I mean, again, between Hope 6 and then later the Choice Neighborhoods Program, you can see all the sort of thinking from that time has really blossomed. I mean, for me, watching the work happen at Old Colony as a private yeah. vendor, I, happen, I was able to help with that a little bit. Watching what's going to happen at Mary Ellen McCormick, what's going to happen at Charlestown. These are like, these are not things that are happening everywhere in America, unfortunately, but it's a kind of thinking that I think is just, it's it's exciting to be part of. And that's what brought me yeah, back. And, and Mike and I both lived previously a block or two from the West Broadway development. And it's it's a great example for what public housing should look like from from the surface. It's, it's actually beautiful housing. It's well-designed. It's well-kept. It's a really good example for the city. So I'm, I'm glad to hear you're involved and not surprised that you were part of the brains behind that. And, and you mentioned, you know, the Maryland McCormick would win and, and Charlestown and, and Old Colony. These are amazing and, and really 
massive, massive projects that the BHJ is undertaking. And with new leadership, Kenzie Bach, who's, who's great and a friend and a I'm great- I'm a huge fan of Kenzie. She's, she's, she's a force of nature and the right person to run that organization going forward. And it's been awesome to watch those developments come up for a rethink, for a, a rejuvenation, because they're in locations. You know, we think of Mary Ellen McCormick a lot. That's one of the best pieces of real estate, maybe in the United States. Waterfront, you got Mowgli Park. There's just so much opportunity. Old Colony, same thing, same location. I was riding my bike to work today, and as I as I do a couple times a week, and I sort of was coming through there on my way up from Dorchester, and uh, right the, in what they call the Polish Triangle, I'm sure you know mm-hmm. well. Sort of, you can see a piece of one of the townhouse segments of Mary Allen, and you say like, "There's not a that particular." If you took that picture and you said it was. It looks just like a piece of classic uh, Boston Literally. neighborhood. You're, you're so absolutely I think right. the chance to to do that project in a way that really builds out its capacity is pretty thrilling. Sorry to interrupt you. No, that's great. And and we want to get back a little bit to to Boston. Sure. Some of your thoughts here and your plans and and your strategy. One of the most interesting parts for us about your history is your time in Detroit. Well, sure. It's a great American city with a rich history, and it's gone through some challenging decades. So we'd love to hear your experience there and how you're drawing upon that now? Sure. Well, in preparation for a conversation like this, I spent a little time <laughs> thinking about it. So working in Detroit was incredibly meaningful for me for a number of reasons. You know, my mom and dad are both uh, Detroiters. They are, uh, they were yeah, East Siders, which would mean more in Detroit than it does here. But the chance to work in that community for those reasons was enough. But, you know, the the fact that uh, I arrived just as the resolution of the of the bankruptcy was happening in, in 2014, there was a really convulsive change to the way the way Detroit worked. And seeing that happen in a, in a community that's close to my family's heart and, and many others was a really unique uh, opportunity and I wanted to be part of it. So it's funny, it, the thing about Detroit that it's, it's uh, the stories to tell could be either sometimes anecdotes can take on a character you'd, they don't need, but I think I'd rather start by just saying, like, Mike Duggan is was an amazing mayor to work for. He had incredibly high expectations for all of us and for the city, and he uh, worked carefully and hard with us all day and night for for all the years I was there. I know he's still doing it. So I am just a huge fan of of Mike and the mayor and all the people, the team members I've worked with there. It was a really just galvanizing moment. And I think it's something that's underreported is the way that the city council, uh, who is such an important part of the day-to-day operations of the city, was also really galvanized and I think asked a lot of appropriate questions, but was really a partner to the mayor and the administration in executing the work. And it's that kind of bringing people together about a common cause that I think made a huge difference in and the trajectory of the city. I have worked in Washington, D.C. and in Detroit in near, you know, emergency manager, kind of where the climate around development has a sort of sense of urgency. And the, the galvanization that happens is is really important to, to making it a difference. It was important to, uh, to help me recruit great team members. It helped me bring those new team members together with old team members, many of whom who had been working really hard for the city and hadn't been recognized. It helped me in so many ways. But, you know, 
it was a great experience. I'd say the, the, the difference is I had a chance as a Massachusetts employee working for the Patrick administration to work in a lot of the gateway cities of the Commonwealth. And I would just kind of characterize Detroit as having some of those kinds of issues where you don't have a strong market necessarily. And so you spend a lot of time both trying to respond to people's people's need for affordable housing, what would be characterized as affordable home ownership, and at the same time trying to create a market and work with sort of the market drivers to sort of strengthen individual parts of the city and then to try to broaden that out. So it was just a, again, the the kind of thinking, the energy, the the spirit of, of, of working with folks there was great. I've got lots of anecdotes if you ever want to hear any or have time for them about what it's like to work there, what Detroiters are like, what economic development and housing development are like there, but probably don't have time for them. I think if there's a thing that's going on now that I'd want to point out to outside observers would be, uh, look at what's happening at the Michigan Central Station in the Corktown neighborhood, where you know, a building that used to be called like the tombstone of the city, which was the old train station, which is really the Ellis Island of the city. People, African-American residents and people from the region will talk about arriving in the north in that building and how meaningful it was, including my own parents. And then, you know, you talk to other people who maybe may not be you know, white, white people or other folks from other parts of the country who had the same experience of coming into Detroit uh, at that time, a lot of times connected to the war effort or making material for the war. And so uh, this building being vacant for a generation uh, now with the Ford Motor Company's investment there uh, becoming a real sign of the city's change is just a, a very meaningful thing. That I, had, I had a chance to make my contribution was getting it through a community benefits process approval and being part of the team that got the resources approved was just a really special moment. I think when people go back uh, to the city or, or read about that story because it's beginning to be told more nationally, it's an example of people coming together. Yeah, totally. And, and you know, you have this track record now, I think it's close to 30 years of planning, development, with an urban focus, but you've also been at the federal level with HUD. So you've sort of been at the state, city, federal level. And I think all of that has informed you in your current position here in Boston. And where, like we said before, we're, we're in a unique moment of time. Yeah. There is no shortage. There are no shortage of opinions about what should be done or what, what shouldn't be done to foster you know continued growth in the city. But also doing that with a focus and a mindset on equity, you know, which hasn't always been the case. It's something that our listeners, many of whom are active in the commercial market, mm-hmm. uh, on the private side, I think we could we could all benefit from just listening a little bit and having you walk us through your perspective on the right way to move the city forward today. I appreciate that question a lot. And what I know is tough is, you know, we are we're in a moment now where I feel like the between the changes in the interest rates and marketplace and really the way that we're all challenging ourselves. And I think I, I do want to make sure that I when I talk to Boston business leaders, commercial, residential, et cetera, many of them are asking themselves and their organizations the right questions about this. And so I want to sort of first say I applaud all those efforts. And I think the engagement I've had whenever I've tried to in- talk to folks about it has been has been really has been really good. So that's number one. I think one of the things that's toughest about our business is that development is really a relationships business. 
I don't want to put my old friend on the spot, but I've got an old development friend here in Boston, very successful career uh, in residential. And I remember years ago, I asked him, and this is a conversation I, I try to cite as often as I can. I asked him, wouldn't you joint venture with this other team? He's an African-American developer. This other team to create this team that can do this, uh, these other uh, aspects of the project. And obviously he said he would think about it because I was asking in my official capacity for them to think about a joint venture. But he said, listen, you know, I've got my, the relationships I brought to this negotiation are relationships where that I've cultivated over years with people who I've had to be in a, a closing with them where they had to take some risk and I had to take some risk and we've had, and we've gotten through those challenges together. So you're asking me to change, to sort of have a new relationship with someone, with someone new that I don't know. I don't know if we value the same things. I don't know what they're going to be like at that closing table. And I have to say goodbye to people that I've been working with for a long time. So I tend to, when I think about the conversation about equity with, especially in maybe the commercial side where there's been even less, it hasn't had the primacy maybe that it's had. I try to say like the, what I'm most interested in is fostering those relationships because they don't always have immediate fruit. But if you were meeting four or five new vendors who you can have that kind of relationship with on the commercial side, it's not just a conversation that happens today. It's a relationship that hopefully like 10 years from now when you're really moving on the really big project, you can say, yeah, I started out small with this with this organization and we came together and, and did a great job. And that started now. But five, 10 years later, you say, well, yeah, we're doing a much bigger thing. Because unfortunately, it does take time to do that, but it has to start. And so I'm really interested in creating an environment where we're starting that and it's going to grow into something bigger. But that does mean that I, I have to be a cheerleader and I create as many occasions for those interactions to happen. People can start working on new business. And so I think as the next sort of six months sort of roll out, I think hopefully that I'll be creating a lot more of those opportunities for people to meet and to collaborate. And I think, you know, with the questionnaire we sent out recently to the development industry asking, you know, how do, how does it work for you now? I think I'd rather build on the assets and the, and the ways that people are already making those relationships work and make it easier and deepen those opportunities than to create something new. Because again, it's a relationships business and someone who was your licensed site professional on this brownfields, it's very likely to be your licensed site professional on another one because you built trust with them and you made it through a process with them. All the different other disciplines, architecture, uh, your lender, all these things, are, you go back to people you've had success with. So creating success with wider group of people has got to be the goal. Yeah. And I think, I think everyone is encouraged. There's been some really high profile examples of this, several of which we've talked about on this podcast, but I think everyone has a common interest in moving that forward. But your example there of helping different people in the business build credibility and not just waiting for the big trophy tower and say, okay, now's the time to find some diversity on this, on this team and put together the right group. It's also sort of every project along the way, building up to that, helping people build a track record, just like any subcontractor would have to, or any vendor would have to. But I think a focus and being intentional about that is going to be helpful. Could I add one other thing, which is there is nothing like an owner saying this is important to me. Like when I say the owner, I mean the, the developer of the project, the owner the, saying this is important to me at the first meeting, right? Because one of the things that I see happen uh, too often is they get the memo about what they want to do, but they do it late and they're adding something at the last minute. I think when the owner 
whose, whose job it is to execute the whole thing, says, listen, part of why this project is going to be great is because we did this thing. And saying it early and starting there, you know, who's our, you know, the, the first partner we choose? Can we make sure that the first or second partner we choose here is one of these kinds of stakeholders? That sends a huge message and it, it makes your whole project stronger. So, or, or, it makes your whole project more reflective of that decision all the way through. So, again, that's why the relationships and the early, and the early start are important. And, again, hearing it from the owner is, is so crucial. And, and, and the city has done a great job under your leadership and the mayors. And and they're not alone. Massport's done a great job of, of, of pushing DEI and, and a lot of initiatives. And it's been a major change. And, and you're starting to see that become the norm, which is, which is excellent. We wanted to switch a little bit to affordability, affordable housing in particular, and not necessarily Boston Housing Authority, but inclusionary housing, affordable housing, and residential development. We'd love to know from your perspective what's working there, what's not, and, and maybe a little bit more particularly, what would you say to a developer who they're already having a tough time making the numbers work in a development? You layer in this inclusionary housing policy, it's, it's very challenging. We know it's an important policy and we need to find a way to make housing more attainable. What would you say to that developer? And, and again, what do you think is working in the, in the affordable housing space in the city right now? So I appreciate the chance to talk about this one because this is a this is a this is something I hear a lot about. So I guess what I'd say is I'd want to do a little bit of sort of making sure we're all having the same experience of of the issue, and then talk about sort of wh- wh- where I think we're going. So I think when I talk to a developer who says I'm really afraid of IDP, I really try to say I want us to be on the same side of the table here. We need your the supply you're going to generate. And we also need the affordability. So I spend a lot lot of my time saying, okay, if you want to do, and and everybody does, by the way, if you want to accomplish this goal with us, let's think about how do we close the gap outside of IDP? Because I think what I like to do in terms of the storytelling backwards is just, just to say, first of all, we're a community that has for years said it's so important that we have mixed income communities with a range of people that we have a percentage that is the market supports now and has supported at, at lower rates for a long time, that that's so important to us that we've, we now have thousands of units that have been developed this way. And I think the this business community needs to sort of be recognized for doing that. That's not something that they're doing in every American city. So I think we have to recognize that, number one. Number two, I'd want to say, I think the last 10 years, we've had interest rates at a low that's just been completely unheard of, and we've had a real a real boom time. And I think the change in interest rates has, uh, has really depressed what people believe they can do. The third thing I'd say is I think the introduction of lab space on the scale that we've seen and the difference in value between the lab space and other kinds of space that's been developed has created, frankly, the room for there to be more of a reasonable ask for, for IDP, but I think the moment we're in today, the exact moment we're in today, I get the question all the time. It, this IDP is gonna is gonna hurt us. It's gonna make it hard for us. Or it's gonna slow us down in reaching our supply goals. And so I think for that reason, what we've been doing is saying is taking the right amount of time. I think to cultivate it, a view of IDP, and to think carefully about what should be in it, but then also think about when. You know, when it's appropriate for the new rules to, to kick in and what its relationship with the projection of when our interest rates are going to continue, are going to moderate. And then I think going back to my original point, let's get on the same side of the table. I think we've also begun 
really earnest conversations with the industry to say, okay, how do we get on the same side of the table? Recognizing we'd all like there to be a faster permitting process in terms of starting construction on new supply. What are the things that would incent you guys to take approved projects and move them into the marketplace? We've gotten some great feedback from some of the leaders in the market who we've asked about this. We're thinking about a wide range of things because we I think we think it's it's time for us to think about the right kind of incentive to get some of those 22,000 units or so into production. But I think hopefully that gets to your yeah, question. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. We, there's been a, a moment where it seems appropriate to ask, but then the time when it needs to be started is something that we've focused on. And then getting on the same side of the table, what are the public, private, other things we can do to make it easier? I'll give one easy example which would be, uh, we did a survey of about 30 of the stick-built developers who had already committed to do 17% IDP, who hadn't started. And we asked them, okay, what are the what are the impediments to you starting? Help us think about, from a policy standpoint, what's... And the, all of them said, well, you know, I got to get my TAPA updated. I need to get, um, you know, I've, I'm just waiting for my ZBA, uh, my final, the, the final documentation, my ZBA vote to come to me so I can get my legal opinion and close. And only a few of them said they were actually having a literal capital gap. And so... What, one of the first things we did was name an ombudsperson to join us who's just going to move those prod, kind of clear cases. I keep using um, uh, detective show analogies here, but like trying to like, I would like that project to be crossed off the list and be in, in construction. And if there's a gap, we can also find out about it. But there's a lot of folks, lowest hanging fruit, who we should be able to get into. So, so thinking about means like that, even before we begin thinking about some of the economic moves. Uh, the other thing I'd say is just, We've got developers who come to us and say, I'm ready to do 17%, which we think is great. And it's one of the reasons that the 17% that you've heard about IDP has been proffered. But there's also a chance, we think, to sort of begin to serve a population that we really need to serve people who are holding vouchers, vouchers that begin to approximate 100% rents, 90% rents, where people aren't going to make a big, have a big loss on them but they're having a hard time getting placed in the market. I think we see that as a, as innovation we've tried to, to bring forward. But to your point, just to close out, I would say we don't build a lot of housing developers, except for Kenzie, developers build it. So we have to have a partnership. And again, I want us to be on the same side of the table and uh, not only be saying we can do even better, we, we want to help you do even better and be part of the partnership that makes that happen. Yeah, I think you've made some comments recently, which which have been well received in the market. But it's acknowledging that timing is really important to announcing, and and then you know I think there's formation of policy, which is not a quick process, and then implementation and execution of that. And sometimes that does not line up with where the market is. And certainly, you know, a lot of our listeners would be upset with us if we didn't make the point that you know right now this is not a market where development sites are easy to figure out without any additional layers or constraints from a policy standpoint or, 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 you know, a permitting standpoint or whatever it might be. And things change quickly. The life science market, I think, gets pointed to. People looked at the life science market as this unstoppable, the, the big bad wolf. And guess what? You know, the, the public market, there's some changes in the public equities market and, and pretty quickly the life science market changes. And I just think that we're so sensitive around here because we're in this business every single day to how the demand markets change. You know, it used to be six years ago, everything was a multifamily site. Three years ago, everything was a, a life science site. Exactly. <laughs> and right now, 
you know, it, it's it's a little bit trickier of a conversation to figure out what something should be. You know, I would say the mayor recently gave some comments to banker and tradesmen just about things that she's thinking about. And I obviously we were in conversation a lot. And I think the mayor saying, you know, we're looking at this range of things and including talking about about property tax. I think that's new. That's a new thing. And and I think it's again, it's indicative of the kind of conversations we're having, because, again, I think our desire is for us to be on the same side of the table with the industry, because, again, we together is how we get growth in Boston. So we have to focus on those things that bring us to the same same side of the table. Couldn't, yeah. couldn't agree more. And, and that was what resonated from your first comments to me the most was get on the same side of the table. We're, we're on a team here. We're all trying to do the same thing. We're trying to deliver meaningful supply to the city to create supply and, and make housing more affordable. So uh, that that resonates with us. And that's that's what stuck out there for me. And you, know, you mentioned some of the peers in the market and Mike and I have heard great things. This is the first time we've met you in person and we're enjoying every minute of it. Even our guests in our show, I think we've had six or seven guests prior to you and they're all big fans. Uh, you've made quite Uh-oh. an impression. You made quite an impression in the city in a relatively short time. I'd love to know, you know, what in the last couple of years are, are you most proud of? What have been your biggest initiatives? What are the things that, that you're most focused on and, and that you look at and say, geez, I, I, I had a part of that and I'm proud of it? Well, I don't, I'm trying to make it a Boston-focused thing. So I guess if I did three years or five years, I'd have to say some Detroit things. Maybe I'll try to work backwards. You're a humble guy. <laughs> this is a tough question to answer. <laughs> right now. And I think just as importantly, what's the next 24, 36 months look like? What are we hoping to achieve here? Sure. We are... I'll start with that. Yeah, it, it's that that's I'll, important for us. I'll start with that. So um, I had a meeting last night you know, in the office with a developer I, I've known for a long time, you know, old Forest City guy. Pardon me for using jargon, but I think okay. your listeners probably know about Forest City. And after I told this long story about Al Ratner and my chance to talk to him, which was just like a, an amazing American story, we started talking just about the business. And so in that discussion, you know, he said, Arthur, you know, as loud as all the other things have been, you know, what was really loud in the ears of my investors was Wackersy. And of course, for those who don't know, Western Avenue corridor rezoning is the name of the, uh, is, is what we're referring to, which is a rezoning of Alston, which if you drive that, you know, the pike, you can see every, it seems like every day there's a new building or, or you hear about. And so that's really where not only the mayor, uh, industry, we are really focused on the next three or four major rezoning. So Charlestown, East Boston, New Market, and then starting an initiative we've been calling Squares and Corridors is is really where my head's at and what I'm very focused on. So working very hard with the Charlestown community on changes on a plan and zoning changes that are going to make it possible to achieve a, a series of great new projects as well as charting the course for the future of growth there. Uh, that's a place where we can achieve really significant growth in the city. East Boston is a favorite neighborhood of mine, not just because of San Tarpio's, not just because of the Belle, uh, Belle Isle Marsh, not just because of a new train. There's so many great things about Eastie. And finishing the uh, the plan there, and which is going to result in rezoning. I had some real fun in Orient Heights over the winter, uh, which I'm sure has been well documented. I mean that sincerely, like there's nothing like engaged citizens. So I'm excited about that. And obviously, new markets exciting too. What I'm really excited about, and and I think hopefully this will, all of your audiences will appreciate this. 
I'm really excited about Squares and Corridors. Why? Because Squares and Corridors is designed to create a sort of zoning framework in the places that Bostonians use today, their commercial districts that en- enable there to be more residential growth. The same kind of mixed income residential growth we're trying to get on the same side of the table about. We'd like to have that in every major square and corridor in the city, you know, in a version of that that looks authentic to the neighbors and people who've been living there. Now, um, my planners know that I love planning and I want the, the rezoning to happen. Other parts of the team also know that I would like that to result in a five to seven story stick built residential building with with a mix of incomes and and uh, and, and emphasize uh, the home ownership side of living in Boston. That's what I'm really focused on over the next 36 months, because that's, I think, how we're going to grow and how we're going to grow and make our neighborhood stronger. Now, another thing I'm really focused on is I know people have different feelings about this, but I'm a big fan of the accessory dwelling unit and do gentle density, quote unquote, a ways of creating the kinds of growth that looks like our neighborhoods organically, creating a program with all the stakeholders, ISD, FIRE, everyone else who needs to be together, and importantly, MOH, and, and we have been working like weekly on this. I think we're, we're close to some breakthroughs uh, that'll make it possible for ADUs to be a part of growing the city, including a specific, we did a plan in, in Mattapan, uh, which is a neighborhood with a lot of multi, multi-generational living, where we want to really say, is there a way for us to not only create a path to do this, but create some direct incentive to do it using, because again, it's like you're building a permitting a tower in your backyard. I mean, I'm being a little funny, but it can feel that way if you've never done any permitting, right? So we want to make that easier and then give people kind of a standard that they can get used to. So having an ADU where people want it is, is something I think we see as a, a big opportunity. So that's my next, the way I see my next 12 to 36. I won't bore you with the last, uh, the, the previous 36, but but I'm, I'm excited about this work. We're, we're tuned in. The, the, the squares and corridors resonates with us because, the, as you know, we are in the business of selling these commercial properties to investors and, and encouraging investment, you know, into an existing asset or a development site. I think Tommy is, is probably overseeing more sales at development sites than anyone in the city at this point. And for us, it's a very proud moment to sell something to an investor. That It's a developer, usually with a capital partner. And then you drive by in a couple of years and there's and there's something outstanding there that has improved the community. It's led to investment on the ground. It's led to job growth, retail, multifamily, commercial uses. You know, I think that Will Ahmed just posted a picture of the CEO of Whoop and they were just in their new headquarters in, in Kenmore Square, which we we sold that site on behalf of BU under a long-term ground lease to, to related Beale. Delivered an outstanding product there, and now the the headquarters of one of the nation's most impressive new companies. That's really cool. That's that's really gratifying for us on our side of the business. At the same time, in your position, sometimes it's it's similar, but you have the responsibility sort of shepherding the responsible development and thoughtful development and neighborhood growth. But we are, uh, you know, we're very encouraged with the city. We have such great fundamentals here. We can't help but compare ourselves to other cities around the country. And we always say, you are so lucky to be working, investing, developing around Boston. Oh, uh, absolutely. And I, we, think we want to make it easier. If there's something that the mayor says to me every time I see her. It's like, when is it going to be as of right to do what Boston needs? Like you need, and again, she's, She's a very focused person, and she says, when is it going to be as of right to build a 
the kind of growth that Boston needs. And so I always say, well, I talk about my plans. I talk about squares and quarters. And she says, that's great. I want you to do that in a way that every Bostonian will recognize about the mayor, about mayors. That's what she wants me to, she pushes us on that all the time. So I'm, she's very dialed into what I think is really something that's important, which is, can it be as of right to build the kind of, you know, multifamily growth that we need? Can it be as of right? Can we just slow, make it easier for people to do what's right for the city? Well, you're doing a great job in, in your post. And, and again, the short time that you've been there and, and Mike and I and our firm, we're at the forefront of, of global capital. So we, we talk to investors from every continent who are allocating dollars all over the place. And Boston is truly at the top of the list. So we appreciate that there's someone like you who who is uh, is manning the ship here and, and you and the administration are doing a great job. So we're, we're at the top of the list. And I- our focus is keeping it that way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's fear. So I was going to say, that's our where we got to say. Yeah. falling <laughs> off that list. And, and we say all the time, as a cautionary tale, we need to look at San Francisco, right? We need to, we need to really look at what's going on in San Francisco. We, we do. And I think the other thing I, I often have a lot of people in my ear about other places that are kind of uh, nipping and we got to be, we got to make sure we know what they're doing too. And that when they're doing the right thing, that we're doing it too. But to, to your point, yes, San Francisco is very top of mind. A lot of journalism about it. And uh, I remember the first story about, the first story I think I read about it, I think I must have received 25 text messages about the, the New York Times version of that story maybe a few months ago. No, and some of that's just secular shift in the way that people work, which we have a different workforce, a different employment base here. So uh, we do have some insulation to that. I'm glad you're saying that because I think there is it's important to watch that and to see what happens. It's also important to recognize that we are composed differently. And I, I get to work near Faneuil Hall and work in some of the places that Bostonians are, are always going. And it, just like you were saying on the way in, I've seen a kind of a little bit of a hockey stick of like of people. I think we got to keep that going because it's been one of the strongest parts of uh, the city. Plus, you know, I think our, our lab, our lab strength is also it's the in-person business. We love a good hockey reference around here. We're big <laughs> hockey guys. So so we have one more minute, and then we're going to lose Arthur because he's a busy guy. I want to do a quick lightning round, quick couple of personal interest questions. All right. And you don't have to answer. We can, we can skip them. But first question, Arthur, if you were going to go to a concert and see any live act tonight, who would it be? Jay-Z or Eddie Palmieri? So just, are you just looking for just names? Oh, yeah. Okay. That's it. What's the most memorable live music performance you've been to? Uh, it would be Eddie Palmieri, Gusman Center, Miami. 1995. See, we love cool. this. This is great. And, I mean, and he's what, a pianist, um, Latin jazz pianist. What, uh, what book is on your, your nightstand right now? Oh, I'm reading the Lahane book with my book group. Mercies, um, something Mercies. I don't remember it. We'll get just it in put the show it notes. We'll oh, put it in there. Oh, uh, yes, but it's a new Dennis Lahane. I'm reading that with my group. We're just getting back, to, moving again. It's amazing you have time to read. Guy uh, like it's, it's so important. I, I'm like my favorite po- one of my favorite podcasts is a, is a book review podcast. Um, you know, New York Times podcast on. I just love that. I love talking about books. I wish I could spend more time doing it. But on the nightstand is N.K. Jemison, one of her a compilation of Afrofuturist stories. My original copy that I bought from the Amherst Regional Junior High School Library of Red Harvest by Dashiell Hammett, and whatever the name of this Lahane book is that awesome. I can't remember. That's great, great answer. We can't resist. Tom and I hosted probably our first and only book signing, book tour event last night. Our friend Luke Russert uh, just wrote oh, a yeah. book. Oh, yeah. Tim, is it yeah, Tim's Tim son? Tim's son. Yeah. So he's one of our best buddies and just wrote a book called 
look for me there. It's on the New York Times bestseller list. It's number 11 this week, and it's just been really well received. So we're going to send you over a signed copy. Oh, that would copy. be great. Yeah, I we'll can't send wait it to over. read the, I mean, we could do this for a long time, but I can't, the Colson Whitehead books, I've just, I'm a huge fan of him too. And uh, he's got a book coming out uh, soon, but just, yeah, we could talk about books for a long time. It's going to be episode two. Real estate books we could do even do. I remember uh, the Reichmans, you ever read that yep. book? Oh my God. What a mind. We have a pretty good library in here and we have a bunch of interns and they always walk into you know, the office asking different questions. We say, here, read this book. If you've read this book, you'll have a lot of questions and we'll, we'll give you two hours to talk about this book. I and mean, there's, there's a lot of them. So again, it's a, it's a missing thing. And it's one of the things I uh, enjoy is like my wife calls it the men's issues group because like half the guys don't read. <laughs> they just come and drink beers and the other half read the books. So she's like, it's a little more of an issues group than a uh, we all club. we all need an audience to to vent at the end of the week. Yeah, so I think I think it. the the reading is always a good question we like to ask because I, I think for someone like you, you know, the tapestry sort of of your career has been really cool and interesting for us and different. You know, honestly, for for the guests we've had in the past. So this has been really really fun. And we a, appreciate you sharing pleasure. this with us. We hope you come back for another another. Uh, oh, I'd love we'll, to. We'll double click on some of this because there's a lot there's a lot that is behind your role today. And I think the past 30 years of experience in the, in the urban planning and, and the affordable world have all informed uh, you to do a great job in your seat today. And, and we're, we're rooting for you. I appreciate, we appreciate that. you paying attention to the, to the realities of the commercial market. Uh, we got to beat our own drum because it's a concern for a lot of people. We think getting on the same side of the table is exactly the right approach. So we appreciate that. Well, again, I'm, I was shocked you guys would invite me to something like this, but I'm, I'm thrilled to have been here. I appreciate the invitation. And uh, like I said, doors are open. We want to talk. So anytime you want to come, have me come back, I'd love, love to do great. it. That's great. We're encouraged to hear Thank that. you so much. It's great to spend time with you. Keep up the good you. work.